Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and you're listening to the Fairy and Fantasy class. Welcome to Fairy and Fantasy, episode 34. This time, Professor Olson's class concludes their discussion of Peter Beagle's The Last Unicorn with chapters 12 through 14. Okay, um, today being our last day on The Last Unicorn, there is a 0% chance for being able to get through all the things I want to get through, so... Uh, we should begin. There are two things that I would like to add. We were discussing before, we, we, in, uh, two classes ago, we were making a kind of uh, mortality scale, and we were sort of talking about the mortality spectrum, um, which is doubtless a very uh, awkward and dorky way to talk about it. But anyway, certainly there are different uh, characters who have different relationships with death and with immortality, and we're sort of shown different glimpses of this in different ways. Uh, there are two other f- sort of people or characters on that spectrum that I'd like to add um, and sort of think about in those same in that same regard. That is, what do they show us? The first is the skull. What did you make of the skull? What does this skull add to our uh, to our understanding of death and mortality? He has a different perspective than anyone we've seen. Right? We were looking before at everything from the the extremely mortal, if one can use. Uh, adverbs of that kind uh, apply to the, to the adjective mortal. From the extremely mortal butterfly through the immortal unicorn, um, which is immortal again at the end, though less immortal if again you're allowed to qualify that. Um, though again, even that by itself, the fact that I keep wanting to put adverbs in front of the adjectives mortal and immortal, um, I think is a big part of what's going on in this, in this story. It was one of the things going on in this story. But anyway, the skull. What do we learn from the skull? What does the skull show us, Mark? Um, well, as far as the mortality part spectrum, um, I really like what he's... I can't, I'm not going to get it right, but he's, he talks about um, the way he views time now that he's been removed from life. And he says, you know, when you're living, you only see it one way, but, you know, now I see that I could have done this and I could have done this. And it was an interesting perspective on time. Yeah, certainly there's no coincidence that the skull is sort of balanced on the, you know, sort of within this scene by the clock, right? And it's the clock that he's directing them towards. And uh, their relationship with time is one of the things that the skull is emphasizing. And certainly he has a different perspective. Um, And this is one of the things that he picks up on. They're in a rush. And he says, come back tomorrow. But we don't have time. It's like, oh, oh yeah. We have plenty of time. Uh, Page 230 is this passage. I think, Marta, this is the passage you were thinking of. We have no time, Molly. We have no time. We may be too late now. I have time, the skull replied reflectively. It's really not so good to have time. He offers a different perspective on Derek and Zeal. Don't, don't, uh, don't really wish you had plenty of time. Um, that might not be like you think it would be. It's really not so good to have time. Rush, scramble, desperation. This missed, that left behind. Those others too big to fit in such a small space. That's the way life was meant to be. You're supposed to be too late for some things. Don't worry about it. What do you think? What else do we see in the skull? What else does, how, how do we... What do we do with the skull? How, does the skull change our perspective on any of the other things happening or any of the other characters that we've talked about? 
Go. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the idea of time as being a, a human, I guess, mortal construction. Um, I mean, Kat can probably back me up on this, but even if you visit other cultures throughout the world, they have a very different sense of what time is like. You know, if you go to Ireland, you're going to wait for, you know, 10 hours for a bus. Um, uh, and uh, I think the skull is kind of playing up the idea that not only is time influenced by your mortality, but you also sort of have the power to make it do what you want, basically. They're able to walk through the clock because they finally realize that it doesn't matter what time it actually is. They have to do what they have to do. Yeah. You notice when the, when the cat, who's the one who first brings up uh, the striking of the clock, the striking of the clock is one of the elements in the prophecy, the cryptic prophecy, the deliberately cryptic prophecy that the cat makes, right? And the wine drinking itself and the skull speaking. Um, because of the way that Molly receives that prophecy, she's waiting for the, thinking they have to wait for the clock to strike the right moment. It turns out, no, no, it's not. That's not the relationship of time you have to have. And when they recognize, it's not, we are not subordinated to time in that way. Um, and we can see that same concept of subordination of time in her urgency. Right? There's no time. There's no time. Time is... Time is, is the boss, right? We are submitting to time. And he says, no. On the one hand, yes, that's what being mortal is. Right? I mean, one way of thinking about mortality and immortality, and certainly it's one of the things that we've seen already in the story, um, like with the unicorn at the very beginning... Is a different relationship with time, right? She has a different relationship with time. She doesn't realize how much time has passed. Time doesn't pass in the same way in her forest because change doesn't happen in the same way. And change is how you note the passage of time, right? Why doesn't the skull think about time? Well, skull sitting on a shelf. He doesn't. Nothing changes. Nothing happens. He doesn't notice anything. It doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, Jordan? Um, in our discussions on mortality uh, and uh, observations, we've really noticed three themes, time being one, um, the other two being uh, choices and the, uh, the what you care about or love. And the skull actually illustrates all three of them. But interestingly, while he shows the whole not, not, not as much choice or making choices, the other one will do it. It's more of a nature of the thing going on. His, his desire is really much not like the other immortals. When um, when asked, 50 years dead, and still be, still remember, still desire, 50 years dead, then what else can I do? <laughs> He's very much still about the, the wanting and the hoping and the desiring with yeah. the other immortals, except maybe unless you qualify the, uh, the oak as immortal, which we tentatively done, yeah. um, not so much. Yeah, at least closer to that perspective. And the humans, and much closer than the butterfly. <coughs> yeah, I think that the skull is in an interesting place. Because, of course, as a skull, as a skull, it's like the symbol of death, right? And so there's something already intrinsically <coughs> kind of ironic in this immortal death thing, right? The remains, I mean, it's, it's, it is the reminder of mortality. It has experienced mortality as it was a person who did die. And so in some ways, therefore, the complete opposite, almost the logical opposite. But yet it now has a kind of immortality. 
achieves a kind of timeless a kind of timelessness. But as you say, not timelessness. It's not it's not unaware of the passage of time. And it is constantly thinking back on its life. And what does it desire? What does it think about? Yeah, wine, right? Pleasures. It's it just, again, the, the, the <coughs> moral things. And again, we see this kind of irony. Um, Jordan, exactly as you say, pleasures of the flesh. Exactly what it doesn't have anymore. And that, that image, which remember was one of those, was one of the prophetic images... Uh, of the, the wine drinking itself, of, of the skull drinking the wine, the skull, the empty skull drinking the empty bottle, with, we're told, smacking sounds. How is it making smacking sounds? It's got lips. <laughs> it can make clicking sounds, but it can't make smacking sounds. And yet, it is enjoying the wine, which isn't there. Uh, and so the. the the not-present wine satisfies its not-present flesh. And clearly, what is being involved here is its, its memory. You know, this is, this is... Though, again, it's not... It speaks with urgency, right? What makes it urgent? The prospect of the flask being smashed. Right? Um... Yeah, it's um, it does. I think, in, in some ways, although the skull has sort of passed, sort of it's beyond the whole mortality question. In some ways, in some ways, it's more mortal even than the butterfly. But the other major figure that we didn't talk about on the mortality immortality spectrum, which was truly inexcusable. Uh, Ishmendrik himself. What's up with Ishmendrik? It's a, a large and loaded question, but. but His <laughs> mortality has kind of like been suspended for a while. Yeah, yeah. He's he's immortal, kind of. Until he is. Yeah, he's temporarily immortal, and his goal, his fondest wish, is to become mortal again. Not necessarily for the sake. Of mortality, but remember the first thing he says about himself: "I am older than I look." Right? Yeah, he's older than he looks. Why does he look so young? Because he's been suspended since he was an apprentice. His mortality has been suspended. <coughs> so where does this put Schmendrick there? be tempted for most of the book to keep him off the scale, like sort of have him as like a line sort of floating in space. <laughs> but then at the end of the book, put him somewhere between the, the human and the tree, I guess. Because while he is human, he can age now. He is touched by a sense of being immortal like the tree was. And he, even when he is immortal, certainly acts mortal, and talks like other mortals, nobody realizes. I mean, it's not like with the unicorn, where she's just looking at the world in a, in a very different way. He's not, really. And certainly in his interactions with the unicorn at the beginning of the story, when he is still immortal, there's not this, you're immortal, I'm immortal, we both share a similar kind of perspective. 
the things that they talk about that go along with mortality, he has. Regrets, desires, fears. The things that go along with immortality, he doesn't seem to have. He says doesn't seem to be made an immortal in the, I don't know, in the unicornian sense of immortality. Somebody has added a little bit more water to his soup, I think. So it's not more life, it's just longer life. Yeah. Now, he's not getting older physically. So physically speaking, he seems to just be flatlining, right? (laughs) Not in that sense. (laughs) Break out the paddle. But anyway... He, uh, I mean, he certainly is as, he certainly seems to be as killable as any other person. And of course, this is always the, this is always one of the, one of the important factors in the question of mortality, right? When you say something is immortal, do you mean that it just doesn't age and die, or that it's in fact unkillable? Unicorns are killable too, so clearly there doesn't seem to be, is there anything in this book that is immortal and the absolute sense of ever continuing and also unkillable? I don't think so. Liz? Uh, Robin Hood. Hmm? Robin Hood. Robin Hood, yeah. Yeah, now maybe if anthologies cease to be gathered together like those of Mr. Child, maybe he would. But yeah, yeah. Maybe that, that's, a, that's a, certainly an interesting candidate. You, you can't kill him anyway, right? Um, not even by doing awful rip-offs of it. Like Captain Cully does. And, and of course, because Cully is not only trying to, you know, follow in Robin Hood's footsteps, though he's, of course, the only one of his men besides Jack who doesn't follow in his footsteps, literally. Um, he's also trying to suppress it. Right, when you know, one of his men says, sing us a song about Robin Hood. He's like, who's it? Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do that Robin Hood thing here. So he's trying to, it's like he's trying to kill Robin Hood and take his place. Um, but, uh, but Robin Hood doesn't seem to be usurpable. Makes me really happy. I've now used my new word, usurpable, two consecutive days in different classes. Uh, uh, sorry. <laughs> I really enjoy that kind of thing. So, Aaron, go ahead. Uh, what I find interesting about Schmendrick is that I feel like he's not defined by his immortality. The unicorn, it's always present. Her immortality is always present with her. And in our brief encounter with the butterfly, she defines the butterfly by his mortality and says, you know, you only uh, say what you hear because your life is so short. But Schmendrick is just... He just kind of is, and we, we're not even 100% sure how he thinks of himself, and, you know, it's, it's there, but he doesn't let it define him. Yeah, we wouldn't know it if he didn't explain it. Yeah. Um, and we don't necessarily see when he says, I am older than I look, it sounds like a, it sounds like a lie. You know, like, a, like he's just trying to, I mean, as he many times sort of declaims on his own behalf, which turns out to be a fraud. So yeah, it's a little surprising to learn. Well, actually, he is. He is old. So I mean, I, I do agree with that. He's not defined. 
Well, going off of what Aaron said, I think the reason he's not defined by it, unlike the unicorn and the butterfly, is that his immortality is not natural to him. Um, the butterfly, he does have a short life. The tree even has an extended life. The unicorn, it's natural for a unicorn to live forever. But for a magician, this is not normal. Yes, true. Just as... The skull is dead and it's not a normal state for human beings. Who is not to go on in. Well, it's normal for them to be dead. Not normal for them to yeah, continue talking and reflecting upon it afterwards. So far as we know, I mean, I guess we don't have proof of that in this story. But, but of course, I was thinking of the unicorn. Right? Just as Schmendrick has immortality temporarily foisted upon him, so the unicorn has mortality foisted upon her. The unicorn is permanently changed by that, though. And her perspective is made different. Um, and it's unrecoverable by her brush with mortality. Does the same thing or a similar thing happen to Schmendrick? I'm not sure. Well, I'm going to have to answer that question, but go ahead. Okay. Uh, on the subject of truly more things in the bowl. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the bowl, um, which does not seem killable. Um, and we have no evidence that it could be killable. When the unicorn charges at it, we are told if it were flesh and blood or a ghost, it would have shattered like a rotten fruit when the, when the unicorn charges at it. Instead, it just turns around and walks out to sea. What is it then? No idea. No idea at all. It is neither ghost nor flesh. Um, yeah, and I love the end of the rainbow. Just off it goes. Wading <laughs> into the ocean. Um, and there's even that one reference where they're like, you know, like, he, he, he must not, like, the, the sort of Schmendrick's doubt as to whether or not the ocean's going to be able to cover him because he's so huge. Um, Uh, yeah, yeah. Matt? Uh, I've got the impression that the Red Bull is kind of the same class as Robin Except kind of more primal, basic. Because he, he kind of, he, the way they say, like, he doesn't fight, he only conquers. He's, he's, a, he's a psychological weapon. And I think, he, I, I feel like he's intended to represent kind of a basic fear or, or a, just a basic human emotion and in that way he's gotten this immortal status because he's always been around and always will be around. So he's, he's more Robin than Robin than Robin at, at, at the beginning. Yeah, and may conceivably have an end. It's hard to conceive of the Red Bull having an end uh, in the same kind of way. Um, and think about, you know, of course, saying that doesn't mean that the Red Bull's not real, right? As Molly says to Cully, it's Robin Hood who's real. You're the legend. The Red Bull, if the Red Bull is almost like himself a metaphor, himself an idea, himself a, a, this allegorical construct operating within a non-allegorical story and sort of in the way that you're describing it is this sort of embodiment 
uh, of these of these ideas and of these emotions and of this that doesn't mean it's not real any more than Robin Hood is not real. Exactly, realer than everything else, um, and therefore immortal and unkillable. Now, of course, the Red Bull doesn't fit very comfortably into our mortality spectrum because we have not only do we have no sense of his perspective and how I almost said how he looks at the world, but that would be awkward. Uh, how he experiences the world and what he thinks, because not only are we not kind of given any insight into that. But we seem to be led to believe that he has none, that he doesn't really think, and that he doesn't really have any kind of perspective on things. Um, Lear, of course, also occupies uh, an interesting place on the mortality spectrum, too. Right? And I mean this not only through his resurrection. He is mortal. Uh, in one way, possibly the most mortal thing that we see in the story, <coughs> as he's the only one who dies on stage, right? <laughs> on the stage of our story. But he is then resurrected. But of course, not only not only does he have the whole uh, mortality and yet not thing going on, he also has a lot of Robin Hood in him too. When and we've been very hung up on death, but if we look at it kind of on the other end of the spectrum, he was kind of born more than once too, because he said that he came alive um, when he saw her, and then he came alive again, and then of course there's the first time, and he was actually born so three times. Yes. Yes. Um, It's one of my one of my favorite passages. In the old book, on page 272, when he is resurrected. The middle of the page, Prince Lear said, As soon as I saw her, I knew that I had been dead. It was so the other time, when I looked down from my father's tower and saw her. Um, yeah, this is the second time he, he's been resurrected by her. Um, and, yeah, so... Marta, as you say, if we're counting, the third time he's been born. Um, possibly more. I mean, the whole, like, the, his actual birth and the business, but I don't know what was going on with the cats uh, in the town square. And the, no, I mean, it's just, like, weird. And, and then his, you know, his being hit, the announcement by King Haggard, oh, I have a son, you know, a son has come. Um, he has a whole bunch of entrances into the world, and um, it, I mean, at least three, maybe four or five. And, uh, but again, also, the, the other thing about Lear is that he, he's like Robin Hood. He's, he, is, he is not just, you know, a guy who is heroic. He's a hero, capital H. And we see him fulfilling, uh, just at uh, the very end of the book, right? Him, he, 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 he is the reality, a reality, of a Robin Hood kind of legend. Right? I send all my princesses to him. Another one of my favorite lines in the book. Yeah, Karen? Also, Lear gets what the tree promises to Schmendrick but couldn't give him, and Lear's going to live on forever in the mind of the unicorn, and that's actually, to bring up the movie, 
It's not in here, but I do love that line in the movie, which was screen, the screenplay was written by <laughs> saying, uh, she will remember you when men are legends written in, in books written by rabbits. So, Actually, it, it is in the book, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I missed it, but right. I remember it from the and movie I love festival. Women are legends in books written by, by rabbits. Yeah, I love that, too. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a wonderful point. Um, and I, the connection I had made, you're exactly right. Lear does get the reality of that. Um, the tree doesn't really have to offer what it tries to offer, because it is not immortal. It might look at itself as immortal because it, it lives so much longer than everything else around it, but it's not immortal. She is, and she will always remember him. This is what she says, I remember you, I remember, is what she says when she brings him back from the dead. And as Schmendrick points out, she touches him twice. Remember, they've never touched. There's that one perilous moment in the tunnel where she reaches out for him uh, and almost takes his hand. They almost touch for the first time. They've never physically touched. And she touches him twice with her horn as a unicorn, first to bring him back from the dead. And, then the, and Schmendrick says the second time is just, is just for him. Um, she remembers. And she'll always remember. Now, that's, a, that's a wonderful connection. Where does the unicorn end up? We get sort of two departures from the unicorn. The first one, the last time she actually appears in physical form in the story. What's the last glimpse of her we get? In a dream to That's that's yes, that's afterwards. But I mean, like the last physical glimpse before she actually depart, or as she's actually departing physically, before she comes back in in dream form to all three of them in the same night. It's, it's on that same page. It's 272, the page I was just reading about the resurrection. Right before Prince Lear says the passage that I read. When I was dead, Prince Lear began, but she was away. Not a stone rattled down after her, not a bush tore out as she sprang up the cliff. She went as lightly as the shadow of a bird, and when she looked back with one cloven hood, hoof Sorry, with one cloven foot poised and the sunlight on her sides, with her head and neck absurdly fragile for the burden of the horn, then each of the three below called to her in pain. She turned and vanished, but Molly Grew saw their voices thump home into her like arrows, and even more than she wished the unicorn back, she wished that she had not called. What do we do with this? What, are we, what's, what is being suggested to us about the unicorn here in this moment of her departure? I wasn't sure how to take that, but I sort of, I guess I see that as Molly realizing that, or I guess, I don't know if she realizes, but maybe she does realize that the unicorn's touch with mortality has changed her and like calling to her like is going to affect the unicorn differently now mm -hmm. I think. yeah before she the unicorn wouldn't have cared cruelty is a mortal thing but so is kindness and what could she not do there are two things she can't do as a unicorn cry and regret. Yeah. Both of which she now does. 
she tells Shemaim to his dreams. She can have regret. We'll get to that passage in a second. Um, but, yeah, she's now affected by their cries. Their cries of longing. Their cries of pain. And that image. Molly Gru saw their voices bump home into her like arrows. Remember, that's one of the things that can kill a unicorn. There's a small list of things that could kill a unicorn, and everything could kill a unicorn, but arrows are one thing that can kill you, especially arrows that are aimed at squirrels. In other words, chance accidental arrows can kill them. Um, arrows which are not intended to kill. Jordan? Um, I would posit, based on this and other evidence, that the unicorn is not immortal anymore, it has become a third category for every immortal. Yeah, she still has the mortal, but she is made immortal, like physically. She's not going to die. Um, but yeah, she doesn't have the immortal perspective anymore. So yeah, she's now, she, she is, in a sense, due to a kind of perpetual mortality. Yeah, I think that's fair. And that's how she describes herself. And we might as well, we might as well jump up to, uh, uh, to look at that. The page 289. This is her, her, her speech to Schmendrick in his dream the very top of the page. I will go back to my forest too, but I do not know if I will live contentedly there or anywhere. I have been mortal, and some part of me is mortal yet. I am full of tears and hunger and the fear of death, though I cannot weep, and I want nothing, and I cannot die. I am not like the others now, for no unicorn was ever born who could regret, but I do. I regret. I am full of tears and hunger and the fear of death, though I cannot weep, and I want nothing, and I cannot die. Want nothing there. I believe he's using that word want um, in its more antique sense. And it says that she lacks nothing. Um, full of tears and cannot be hungry, but lacking nothing. Afraid of death, but cannot die. Compare and contrast this description by the unicorn of her final state and King Hagrid's perspective. There are some interesting similarities there. Christine? Um, as we were like, told that King Haggard is fearless, but he... I'm not really sure about like, the meaning of this parallel, but... He's fearless, but he has, there's this like this one object in life that he finds some joy in or desire in that nothing else holds for him. And then the unicorn, like she says, um, I don't know where, I think before they go to the Red Bull or as they go to the Red Bull, that like she no longer fears them. So I guess in a way she's also become fearless, like King Hagrid. And even even with that, she's found one object in life that she's found desire of love for, in the same way that King Hagrid did. Yeah. Except, yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I mean, that's that's what the defeat of the Red Bull means, right? That's why the Red Bull does what it does. It doesn't explode. It doesn't die. What does it do? It walks away. Goes away. Walking. Is that her fear, like her command, not commanding? Her yeah, no, exactly. It's just what she told it to do. She didn't fear it. Why is, how is their final confrontation? Not fight 
Matt, as you pointed out, another one of my favorite lines in the book. Right? It doesn't fight, it only conquers. Right? Um, she doesn't fight the bull. They talk about it like that. Like that's what she needs to do. She needs to, she needs to fight and overcome the bull. Um, she overcomes it, but she doesn't, the fight doesn't happen. When she meets it the first time, she runs away. When she meets it the second time, she runs away. And then turns and confronts And when she turns and confronts it, apparently that third time, without fear, which we're told by Hagrid is the key, that it will obey anyone who does not fear it. It goes away. It goes into the sea. And the unicorns are released from the sea that it was keeping. And so it seems to have obeyed them. Because in that moment she was without fear. Why? Why is she without fear? <coughs> what has changed? Lear's sacrifice? Yeah. Lear's dead. Lear's probably lying there. This is his role. And he finally figures out what he has to do. And it takes him a while to figure out this is his third try, too. The first try, he's got his sword and his shield, and he's standing in front of the bowl and trying to fight it off. And they all get knocked aside the first time it charges through. And he loses his sword. He does not have his heroic instrument, his heroic tool. And, but he's still trying. When the bowl comes back, he holds up his hands as if he were still carrying a sword and shield, but he's not. But he's still thinking in those ways, and he's trying to protect her and guard her and do the hero thing like he has taken to doing since he has loved her. And that doesn't work either and can't do anything. And then, of course, he realizes what his job is. Page 264. Yes, of course, that is exactly what heroes are for. Wizards make no difference, so they say that nothing does, but heroes are meant to die for unicorns. And then he just steps in front of the ball and is trampled. That's his job. So we see here mortality, death, impacting the unicorn. <coughs> and her perspective changes from fear to not fear. I say that because I'm not sure what to call it. Courage which would, in one sense, possibly be the opposite, doesn't seem to be exactly right. It's not that she was a coward before. But anyway, she doesn't fear now. Erin? I think um, what's on the next page, 265, which is when it describes the cry of the unicorn, is yes. very telling. Because it makes it sound like... It was not at all like the challenging bell with which she had first met the Red Bull. It was an ugly, squawking wail of sorrow and loss and rage. And it's... Such as no immortal creature Such as no immortal creature ever gave. And it's like she has nothing left to lose. So it's not... When she stood up to the bull before, that was, that was courage. Courage, but absolutely. But she was still scared, but now it's... I've got nothing left to lose. I might as well go for it. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly why I was so hesitant to use the word... Courage there to find an op- that opposite to fear because she, she had that before. Um, but that didn't do it. That wasn't the opposite of fear, it turns out. What is? Deep questions. <laughs> yeah? 
It definitely seems linked with hope. Because I don't think it's hope itself, but it's the the hope of being able to overcome your fear, maybe. Because when Lier dies, she's given up everything she wants to die with him. But then she's able to defeat the bull. Yeah, so despair is the opposite of fear, then? Certainly, Hagrid seems to be there. The other person who has no fear, the other person who commands the red bull. Except, does he despair? He still has that big old unicorn cage, which he goes up and looks at every night. Marvin? I wonder also if it's, if it's linked to hope and, not, and also um, having nothing else to lose. Kind of, she, she, there's nothing more than, you know, she can't lose anything else, Lyra's gone, so it's just like an emptiness, almost. Yes, yes, though, if she were mortal, I think that's how we would talk about it. When she was mortal, she had her relationship with Lear. That was the thing that she had, and we are given to see her love for Lear and her relationship for Lear as the thing that she is, in a sense, giving up her mortality for. It's not quite so direct. It's not quite so conscious. She's not turned away from her immortality knowing that she's forgotten her immortality. And the more she comes to love him and to focus on him, the more she forgets ever being immortal. But now she's immortal again. So if, as a mortal woman, if she were still in, 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 in mortal form when he's trampled, it would have been a loss. But now, it's a gain. That's why I wanted to add that phrase, uh, Aaron, when you read the passage. Um, it was an ugly, squawking wail of sorrow and loss and rage, such as no immortal creature ever gave. She has something. She, she has lost something. I'm she hasn't lost something. But, but she's gained something. As an immortal, she's gained something. Sorrow. Loss. Rage. These things no, no unicorn has ever had. And therefore, she alone, of all the unicorns, successfully opposes the Red Bull. Before whom all the other unicorns were helpless. Jordan? Um, one thing we've been discussing over is that the second Hagrid has no fear, he shows fear at that very moment. The castle plate from King Hagrid shrank back one arm over his face. And yeah. then immediately after, the red ball has a shuffling sand, blowing down for him. Yeah. Yeah. When the unicorn loses with fear, King Hagrid gains it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, though, in the moment of his death, he is not surprised. It's hard to surprise King Haggard. Uh, and he laughs. Um, much more we could say about this, but we have seven minutes left to talk about this book. And if we don't talk about Schmendrick and his relationship with magic, which has been on my list of things to talk about every single day, we've talked about this book and we've never gotten to it, I feel really bad. So let's talk about Schmendrick and his relationship to magic. Looking back over all of the passages related to Schmendrick and his magic, which we have not gotten to, 
What do you remember? What do you notice? We've talked already about his <coughs> uh, temporarily immortal status. How about that for a cool adjective to put in front of the adverb? Cool adverb to put in front of the adjective immortal. His temporary immortal status. Yeah. Tim? I thought it was interesting that he was told by, um, oh, what was the wizard's name? Mabrook? Uh, no. Nikos? Um, right. That um, he was so inept that it was almost unnatural in itself. <laughs> and that's what led him to believe you're going to be so incredibly powerful and surpass everybody someday just because you're so terrible now. <laughs> exactly. His incompetence is nearly miraculous. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, in other words, what Nico sees in him is something like what Drin reports, though untruthfully we learn later, about seeing uh, baby Lear in the in the, in those square like ah I I, I I recognize a portent when I see one right Nikos is, 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 has a similar uh, kind of reaction in the sense well what were you thinking um, I'm sure it's interesting using these magic it seems to me that like, for a lot of the books we're thinking about it like one of these like um, parlor tricks like you go through a set of emotions you get a set result everybody claps that's it but when the only times it works is uh, it's like when he's not trying to into a shape. Yeah. He has to like. It seems to me that he's like demanding, and he needs to get the. He needs to act. Yes. Yes. What's the first? Uh, yeah, Beth, go ahead. Uh, it seems like whenever he does use magic successfully, he's not using the magic. He's becoming a vessel for the magic, and the magic is using him. Yes. Uh, he says, "Magic doers you will." Exactly. Good. That's exactly what I was just about to ask about. The first encounter that we have is when he is trying to do magic to let the unicorn out of the cage. And this is nearly disastrous several times, both for himself and his bloody hands. He almost destroys the unicorn twice um, before he finally just sucks it up and takes the lock. Right? Um, submitted to do this in a non-magical way. Um, but again, clearly, what is different there is his attitude towards it and his relationship with it. Right. Instead of trying to command it, instead of standing up and saying, I am Schmendrick the Magician, last of the Red Hot Swamis, which I still love. <laughs> um, he kneels, and as Beth has pointed out, says to the magic, do as you will. Do as you will. When is that? What happens when he... Robin Hood? Yes, that's when he summons Robin Hood. That's the first act of real magic. Not the first magical act. Even his parlor tricks have magic in them. But, and then, you know, his business with, like, the levitating hat, right, which dumps water on the mayor. He can do magic, but this is the, the first real magic we see is when he submits to it in that way. Second time? He transforms the unicorn. When he transforms the unicorn. And there, too, we see a similar thing. We don't see him being quite as self-conscious about it. We don't see him kneeling and imploring the magic in this way. But we do see the, the magic acting through him. He doesn't really choose. It's not something he does, and he's quite clear about the fact that he couldn't do this. Um, you know, when, when Molly is saying to him, why did you do that, why did you do that, He's like, look, okay. now he gets all excited, right? When he does, when he, when he turns her human, 
I am a bearer. I am a dwelling. I am a messenger. You are an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But you see, even in that triumphant moment, he's still seeing himself in those ways. Right? He is the medium through which the magic passes. He is not the master. He is not the boss. What's the third time we see him do real magic? When real magic happens through him. Turning the unicorn back. Back, which even Nikos could never do. This is why the other unicorn that became mortal had just had to stay mortal and went on and lived and married the prince and lived mostly happily, not quite ever after, for some time and then died. Right? Um, because he couldn't turn her back into a unicorn afterwards. Um, but Schmendrick does this. How? When? And there are two moments. 255 is when it almost happens. <laughs> I almost said something which seems kind of silly. Page 255 is when it doesn't happen. Well, there are lots of pages on which it doesn't happen, but uh, this is when our attention is drawn to it. The Red Bull is about to charge. It looks like they're all going to die. It's his magic or nothing, and he's there thinking to himself, now, now is the time. Whether I work ruin or great good, this is the end of it. That sounds very dramatic, doesn't it, right? This seems like the climax, but it doesn't happen. No power stirred or spoken him. He could hear nothing but the far, thin howling of emptiness against his ear, as old King Haggard must have heard it waking and sleeping, and never another sound. It will not come to me. Nikos was wrong. I am what I see. Um, Notice how King Haggard lurks behind almost every character in this book. King Haggard is like the Uber character, which defines, serves as the definition for everybody else. Um, Schmendrick is like King Haggard. Lear is like Haggard when he when when the unicorn leaves. Um, the, the unicorn herself has things in common with Haggard. Uh, at the end, he is um, maybe in the end the sort of the final spokesperson or representative of the mortal state. That sounds really deep. I don't know if it's true. But <laughs> I have to think about that more. One of the risks of being a professor, you're tempted to say these things, and you're like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe. That would be cool. Anyway, think about it. Tell me if you think that makes any sense. Anyhow, uh, the magic finally does come. I'll do this in just a few seconds. On 258. Wonder and love and great sorrow shook Schmendrick the magician then and came together inside him and filled him. Filled him until he felt himself brimming and flowing with something that was none of these. None of what? Wonder and love and great sorrow. Wonder and love and great sorrow. Yeah. He did not believe it, but it came to him anyway, as it had touched him twice before and left him more barren than he had been. This time, there was too much of it for him to hold. It spilled through his skin, sprang from his fingers and toes, welled up equally in his eyes and his hair and the hollows of his shoulders. Remember before it came from, like, his shin bone or something? Right? <laughs> and now it's filling his whole body, that metaphor was used back in the, with the Robin Hood thing. There was too much to hold, too much ever to use, and still he found himself weeping with the pain of his impossible greed. He thought, or said, or sang, I did not know that I was so empty to be so full. 
And whenever he does any magic later on, he was never, when, later when he's really, really famous and the most famous, more famous than Nikos, top of the next page, he was never able to work the smallest magic without seeing Prince Lear before him, his eyes squinted up because of the brightness and his tongue sticking out. Um, Prince Lear is just as pivotal for Schmendrick as he is for the unicorn. Right? He is a hero. This is his job. In the end, not to overcome anything or to kill anything. The previous killings of things and bringing home their heads didn't do any good at all. Um, I mean, some people would disagree. Yeah, I mean, I guess like the people saved from the ogre and stuff, right? You know, whatever. But, uh, but yeah, um, what really matters. But clearly, he really matters. And yet, through all this, we have Molly Brew. Possibly my favorite character in the whole book. Though she never actually does anything <laughs> at any time. She's sagely and awesome. <laughs> yeah. She, and, and, and that, I think, is really interesting. But yeah, thank you. See you, see you on Friday. Next time we begin our final and most recent book, Sabriel. And that wraps up Peter Beagle's The Last Unicorn. Next time the class will discuss Garth Nix's Sabriel from the prologue to chapter 5. Thanks for listening and Godspeed.